Section 7 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Stella by Anna Cora Mawit Ritchie. Chapter 7. The cast of Evadne was as follows. Mr. Tennant personated the noble Colonna, brother of Evadne. Mr. Swain enacted the lover, Vincenzo. Mr. Belton indulged the audience with an amiable and irresistibly comic assumption of the licentious and remorseless villain, Ludovico. Mr. Conklin assumed the weak-minded king, Stella was Evadne. Miss Doran embodied Olivia, the false friend, who meanly crept into Evadne's soft and trusting heart and coiled herself around her. This young lady was bred to the stage, and had been carefully instructed by her father, the second old man of the theatre, in all its conventionalities. Her familiarity with traditional stage business almost supplied the place of talent. Her acting was bold and melodramatic, but lacked delicacy of a conception. She was often boisterous, never intense. The impress of a reflecting mind was wanting throughout all her personations. A caustic critic once designated her performances as a mingling in equal portions of thunder and pap. Her personal attractions inclined to the Amazonian order, but she possessed in a high degree all the physical elements of beauty. An effective piece of scene painting contrasted with a finely executed portrait in oil would have aptly illustrated the distinctive styles of Stella and Miss Doran. When the two young girls, they were about the same age, met at rehearsal, the petty envy of the narrow mind betrayed itself in Miss Doran's manner. She treated the novice with supreme scorn, seldom deigning to reply to her remarks, and never losing an opportunity of shrugging her shoulders and indulging in a short derisive laugh if Stella appealed to the stage manager for instruction when the business of the scene chanced to be particularly complicated. If there were any truth in theatrical reports, Miss Doran was affianced to Mr. Swain, the undisguised jealousy which she invinced when his vocation forced him to enact the lover of another gave coloring to the rumor. The rehearsal of Evadne concluded that of Love's triumphs commenced. Mr. Percy, as he entered on the stage, silently bowed to the company. He at once singled out Stella. While the prompter was making some necessary arrangements, the young author ventured to address her. Mr. Belton broke up the brief conference by summoning him to his seat at the manager's table, but his eyes still sent her speechless messages. The prompter held one copy of the manuscript, Mr. Percy another. Strange was the phase of theatrical life which now revealed itself to the two neophytes. The presence of the author was wholly ignored by the murmuring actors. After the delivery of a few lines, some malcontent made a dubious pause, then came queries of, what does that passage mean? What's the sense of that? Followed by unreserved comments upon the absurdity of certain situations. Mr. Percy sat paling and flushing, 
writhing beneath the sharp thrust inflicted by those puny whipsters, and watching Stella's countenance, as though one look of disapprobation there would have annihilated all his hopes. Several times he rose from his chair and endeavored to explain, but the actors were possessed with the idea that they knew what he intended far better than he did himself, and that his meaning was sheer nonsense. He resumed his seat in dumb mortification. Reich's picture of Pegasus struggling with the plow was brought forcibly to his mind. Mr. Finch proposed to cut certain speeches. Mr. Percy started up again and held back the hand armed with his inky weapon. Those were the gems of the play. He could not consent to have them suppressed. Mr. Finch looked towards Mr. Belton. Then, without attempting to argue with the perturbed author, ruthlessly struck his pen through the lines over which the poet had labored for days, over which he had gloried, which he had pronounced his most felicitous effort. Mr. Percy ground his teeth at this severing of the golden locks of his theatrical offspring. Stella and Miss Doran were rivals in the new drama, as in Evadne. They were constantly brought on stage together. Miss Doran divided her talents for tormenting between the hapless novitiates. When not engaged in rehearsing, she stood at the wing with Mr. Swain, descanting aloud upon the ignorance and egotism of all novices without exception, and the manifest conceit of all playwrights. Stella felt her cheeks tingle, and she became conscious of more wrathful sensations than had ever ruffled the smooth current of her life. She had never imagined that so much anger could be excited within her breast. Is it not in accordance with divine order, a decree of omniscience providence, that every mortal is thrown into a situation where his inner evils can be brought forth to his own view, that he may know them, acknowledge them, struggle against them, and put them away. When rehearsal ended, Mr. Percy asked permission to accompany Stella home. His request was not denied. It was quite late before Stella and Maddie left their dwelling for the theater that night, but Evadne does not appear until the second act. Fisk was standing at the door of the star dressing room with a bouquet in his hand. Here's a nosegay from your bow. I thought you'd catch one by and by. Who's your Claude, I wonder? There's a little Billy out amongst the leaves. Don't let him drop out. Stella made a signal to Mattie, who took the flowers. The note was tossed into a dressing case, unopened. Stella did not leave her room that evening until she was summoned to the stage. Evadne enters, gazing upon a miniature. Her rapturous reception proved how firmly the young actress was established in the good graces of the audience. Again, again, and again, she gracefully bent to their repeated plaudits. Just as she was curtsying for the fourth time, she heard a malicious voice exclaim, Oh, look! She has found out the catch-applause curtsy already, and is begging for more. Stella involuntarily looked around. 
Miss Doran stood at the wing, ready to appear as Olivia. The latter enters at the close of Evadne's soliloquy. Most assuredly, Miss Doran exhibited her thorough acquaintance with the catch-applause curtsy, for, just as one round of clapping subsided, she commenced a new inclination, which brought down another, repeating the wily process as often as the audience could be lured into prolong their greeting. The bewitching salutations over, Miss Doran proceeded, with artistic self-possession, to back up the stage, so far behind Stella that the latter was forced to turn her face from the audience whenever she addressed her. Through the whole scene, Miss Doran maintained this position. After the exchange of pictures, Olivia makes her exit, and Vincencio enters. Miss Doran stationed herself at an entrance where she could overlook the entire stage. Her dark eyes flashed with hatred as Evadne accosted Vincencio thus. Are you then come at last? Do I once more behold my bosom's lord, whose tender sight is necessary to my happiness, as light for heaven? My lord, Vincencio, I blush to speak the transport in my heart, but I am rapt to see you. When Vincencio gazed on Evadne with a look of unsimulated admiration, and gave significant utterances to the appropriate lines, let me peruse the face where loveliness stays, like the light after sun is set. Sphered in the stillness of those heaven-blue eyes, the soul sits beautiful, the high white front, smooth as the brow of Pallas, seems a temple sacred to holy thinking, and those lips, where the sweet smile of sleeping infancy, they are so innocent. Miss Doran, bit her own lips until the blood started. But fruitlessly she attempted to distract Stella's attention or force taunting remarks upon her ears. Stella, when she once succeeded in throwing herself into a character, forgot all else. Miss Doran made a point of following her about behind the scenes, endeavoring to convey by her manner an insolent fear that Stella would imagine herself Evadne still, and hold sweet converse with her beloved Vincencio. The novice took refuge in her dressing-room. She did not venture forth again except when required upon the stage, but as often as she appeared before the audience, her eyes invariably encountered the sinister gaze of Miss Doran at the wing. In spite of this disturbing influence, she achieved a victory far transcending her former triumphs. Everybody is acquainted with the grand climax of the play, when Evadne rushes to the statue of her father and, clasping her arms around its neck, bids the king for whom he died, and who would dishonor his subject's child, to take her thence if he dare. The fifth act in which this scene occurs represents a vast hall in Colonna's palace, lined with statues. Moonlight streams through Gothic windows and falls upon the sculptured forms. Before the curtain rose, Stella stole upon the stage to examine the statues of Evadne's ancestors, which she was about to describe to the king. She desired to assure herself of their locality. As she passed down the aisle, 
she caught a glimpse of Miss Doran, who was standing upon the pedestal of a statue which supported Evadne's father. The actress leaped down in obvious confusion. Hastily concealing something in the folds of her dress, she ran towards the green room. Stella had cause to remember the circumstance afterwards. There was no time for her minutely to examine the statues before the curtain rose. Evadne's interview with her brother was enacted with the dignified composure that befitted a being firm of purpose and sustained by the conscious strength of innocence. At his sister's request, Colonna conducts the king to her presence and retires. The insulting proffers of the latter are answered by Evadne with a prayer that he will look upon the reverend forms surrounding him that keep the likeness of her ancestors. She points them out in turn until she comes to that of her father. There she pauses and, after gazing reverently upon the beloved image, rises to her full height and she turns her glowing face upon the king and proudly asks, Who was my father? She describes him, his services, his death upon the battlefield in shielding his monarch, then rushes to the statue and fervently clasps her arms around its neck. The action was made with reckless impetuosity. What was it that caused Stella to start and stifle a half-shriek as she drew back? What face was that pressing forward at the wing with an exulting, sardonic expression that seemed to say, her best point is ruined? Stella reclasped her half-withdrawn arms. There were drops of blood rolling down the neck of the senseless statue. The arms by which it was encircled had been lacerated by sharp nails disposed with their points dexterously projecting outwards to accomplish that cruel office. But the actress never flinched, though they pierced deeper and deeper as she passionately exclaimed, Breathless image! Although no heart doth beat within that breast, no blood is in these veins, let me enclasp thee, and feel thee at my bosom. Now, sir, I am ready. Come and unloose these feeble arms and take me. I take me from the neck of this senseless stone and to reward the father with the meat and wanted recompense that princes give make me as vile as guilt and shame can make me. The king replies, She has smitten compunction through my soul. Evadne, approach, my lord. Come in the midst of all mine ancestry. Come and unloose me from my father's arms. Come if you dare, and in his daughter's shame reward him for the last drops of the blood shed for his prince's life. King, thou hast wrought a miracle upon thy prince's heart, and lifted up a vestal lamp to show me my soul in its own deformity. The effect produced upon the audience was electrifying. The walls reverberated with prolonged acclamations. Mr. Belton, as the curtain fell, threw off his politic reserve and warmly commended the young actress. He had noticed her torn and bleeding arms and now severely reprimanded the property man who had the statues in his charge. Stella made no remark while the man protested that they contained no nails when he arranged them upon the stage. 
but as she triumphantly swept by Miss Doran to reply to the enthusiastic summons of the audience, she darted at her a look which both comprehended. Could so much scorn flash from Stella's gentle eyes? Could so much bitterness, so much enmity, find room within her loving breast? She was startled at herself when she found that such fierce passions were developed in her spirit. Look at them, reckless girl, with self-scanning eyes. Admit all their hideousness. Marvel that those wolves and tigers could intrude into the lambfold of thy heart's tenders affections. Then pray the Lord for the strength to drive them out. So shall thy untried soul leap with its first impulse towards regeneration. When Stella returned to her room, the note lying in her dressing case chanced to attract her attention. She sat down, half disrobed, to break the seal. The paper contained a poem of some length. She was tossing it aside with a careless, I have no time, when the signature Edwin Percy caught her eye. A soft smile, companioned by a blush, threw its radiance over her face as she read, some lines she appeared to re-peruse many times. When she had sucked the honey of these music vows, the verses remained lightly clasped between her palms. She neither rose nor spoke. Mattie moved quietly about the room, folding the young girl's stage attire. Everything was in order for their return home. Still, Stella remained unconscious of her presence. Presently there came a sound of bustling feet rushing up and down the stairs. The farce was over. In twenty minutes more, the gas, according to Mr. Belton's strict rules, would be extinguished throughout the establishment. I know you are weary, Miss Stella, dear, and it goes against me to disturb you, but it's getting very late. Won't you put on your dress to go home? Stella immediately complied, and the poem of course it was restored to her dressing case no it found a far fairer receptacle where quick pulses beat against the fair lines which warmer pulses throbbed in penning mattie had taken up the bouquet but stella caught it from her hand i will carry those flowers they are so exquisite i think this is the most beautiful bouquet that was ever sent to me oh no miss those you received yesterday were a good deal more beautiful. I never saw anything equal to me, but, dear me, you hardly look at them. They did not seem to me so beautiful as these, replied Stella, wholly unconscious of the dawning sentiment her words betrayed. When they returned home, Stella could not seek her couch. The new drama had only been imperfectly calmed, there was no time for a mellowed conception of her role, but the language of the poet must be fixed in her mind. She bathed her burning brows and gas-dazzled eyes, and slowly paced her chamber with the play in her hand. All the house but Mattie and Stella had lain their burdens in the lap of sleep. The one plied her needle on a rich brocade designed for the morrow's wear. The other drank in the inspirations of the young poet. As she stored his glowing thoughts in her memory, she dreamed herself the envoy sent with palms of honor for his hands. 
What hour breaks the stillness with its loud strokes? One, two, three. Soon the gray-eyed morn will smile upon the frowning night. Three hours and no more may Stella's heavy eyelids be folded down. On the day of the benefit, the well-filled box sheet, the dense crowd collected around the box-keeper's office, were sure prognostics of an overflowing house. The appointed time for rehearsal had passed by a full hour, and Mr. Tennant was still absent. How anxious and restless the young author must have been. No, not in the least. His seat was on one side of the manager's table. On the other stood two chairs, by theatrical courtesy, reserved for the stars. One of them was occupied. Ardently as Edwin Percy coveted success as a dramatist, that ambition weighed lighter than a butterfly's wing when balanced against the new, life-absorbing desire that asserted its supremacy over all other hopes. His thoughts wove themselves closely around Stella and drew her into the sanctuary where the holiest things had residence in his spirit. Her manner towards him was more reserved than it had been on the day previous. The eyes which she now and then lifted to his had taken their softest, bluest hue, but they were not raised long enough for him to peruse their mysterious depths. Her answers were so brief and constrained that one less sanguine than Percy would have deemed her cold. Mr. Tennant now entered. His wife continued dangerously ill. That apology was readily accepted by all. It was no wonder that the tragedian only had a very vague idea of the author's language. It soon became apparent that he could not matter the reword, and to the horror of Mr. Percy was compelled to refer to his part. Several of the actors followed his example. The use of parts at a last rehearsal is, however, against stage rules. Stella and Miss Doran were the only two of the company who delivered the words of the play unmutilated. Mr. Doran had bestowed more than usual pains upon his daughter's tuition. He lingered at the wing and watched all her movements, chiding or commending every time she made her exit. He was resolved that she should compete for laurels with the new favorite. Mrs. Fairfax had no great affinity for her part, nor was it suited to her style. Had not sweet charity tempered all her thoughts, she would have wished the play a brief existence. Mrs. Pottle was perfectly odious in her royal role. She converted justice-dispensing majesty into a scolding market-woman. The actors prophesied the failure of the play. Their tacit conspiracy against its success was well calculated to bring about the prophecy's fulfillment. Mr. Percy, despite the theatrical torments to which he had been subjected, despite the lashings and buffets and football treatment which his dramatic offspring had received from those scornful players, was still buoyed up by high expectations. As he made his way that night through the crowd and secluded himself in a private box, his elaborate toilette betokened that he was prepared to bow from his retreat. 
in acknowledgment of certain enthusiastic demonstrations, or perhaps to appear before the footlights and deliver a neat speech, expressive of his overpowering emotions. Stella found in her dressing room at the theater a wreath of fresh white roses. The note attached to them contained these words, One who would scatter thornless roses in the path of genius praise you to wear this flowery coronal tonight. E. P. Stella hesitated a while, she hardly knew why, and then bound the roses a fitting symbol on her pure brow. The curtain rose. The dialogue commenced between two courtiers whose duty it was to apprise the audience of the history of certain individuals concerning whose welfare they were expected to become solicitous. But this interesting communication was delivered in tones so confidential that the listeners remained in ignorance of the praiseworthy intention. The author only now and then recognized an expression to which he could conscientiously lay claim. Characters of more importance now made their appearance. A middle scuffle for words and ideas ensued. Mr. Percy's box communicated behind the scenes. The author rushed out and implored the prompter to give the word loudly. Was the audience to suppose that he had been guilty of perpetrating such offenses against grammar, good taste, common sense, as were being committed in the trash just uttered as his? It was distracting. It must not be. Miss Doran's entrance gave a diversion to his feelings. She was sumptuously costumed and looked magnificently beautiful. Stella soon followed, and now the wandering attention of the audience became fixed. Mr. Tennant entered at a critical moment, and interest increased. But that portion of the dialogue which fell to the share of the troubled actor was supplied by rapid improvisation. All the flowers of poesy and dewdrops of fancy were ruthlessly stripped and shaken from the original stem. Mrs. Fairfax played languidly. Her personation raised up no supporting pillar beneath the tottering dome of the author's dramatic edifice. Mrs. Pottle next strutted on the stage. Her stunted, shriveled-up figure was almost concealed in the folds of her far-spreading train, fashioned of flame-colored cotton velvet. She had prodigally adorned her diminutive head with a large crown, cut out of gilded foil. It was her own tasteful manufacture, and, being somewhat limp in its construction, shook and rattled at every movement. Such a peal of laughter as broke from the audience when she turned towards them her wizened face. Mrs. Pottle had been occupying her leisure moments in the green room in the laudable pursuit of plain sewing. She chanced, at the moment when Fisk made his call, to be more deeply engrossed by her housewifely avocation than her professional triumphs. The queen had pompously stalked upon the stage without removing the spectacles which glittered just beneath her gilt paper crown. The hand which she lifted to give point 
to her declamation showed one finger armed with a shining brass thimble. The unconscious Pottle smiled benignly. And when the diversion of the audience found vent in mocking applause, she curtsied in the style in which she thought queens were wont to curtsy. It may be well to state that her conception of royalty was chiefly derived from the regal dame chronicled in Mother Goose, as diverting herself in the kitchen with the consumption of bread and honey. Some individual in the gallery waggishly inquired whether Her Majesty had quite repaired the aperture in her royal consort's stocking. Mrs. Pottle's attention was consequently attracted to her thimble. She plucked off the tell-tale armor and hunted for a pocket, but pocket to her newly made queenly garments there was none. She clutched at her spectacles. They were entangled in her hair, but after a several furious pulls, gave way, dislodging the wonderful crown. It sent forth a tinsel sound as it lightly dropped on the stage. The merriment of the audience was now at its height. Mrs. Pottle was decidedly crestfallen. Her majestic airs melted away. She poignantly felt that with the loss of her fine top-knot feathers, she could no longer pass for a fine bird. Her attempts to scramble the crown on her head as though it had been a nightcap were saluted with fresh shouts of hilarity. The little woman, with her crown awry, her frightened face, her long train, presented an object irresistibly ludicrous. The words of her part were all startled out of her so lately discrowned head. The second act abruptly concluded, before the audience had received a clue to unravel the tangled plot of the drama. At the second fall of the curtain, Mr. Percy hurried about behind the scenes, pleading with the prompter, remonstrating with the actors, imploring them to rouse themselves, to have pity upon his feelings. Some laughed in his face. Some turned away without a reply. Some answered savagely that they comprehended their own business and should hardly go to him for instruction. In the third act, the tide of disorder suddenly turned. The play progressed intelligibly. Stella and Miss Doran again occupied the stage. Mr. Percy's frost-nipped laurels budded anew. Mr. Doran stood at the first entrance, watching his daughter, and now and then giving her directions in an undertone. Stella's spirited performance caused Miss Doran's line and meter acting to appear tame. Mr. Doran was determined to arouse her to greater exertion. As she passed close to the spot where he was standing, he exclaimed in a vehement whisper, Fire! Fire! Malvina! Fire! at the same time working his arms up and down in an excited manner. Her Majesty happened to flit by at the very moment. She heard the terrible words, fire, fire, and supposed Mr. Doran was giving his daughter timely warning of a conflagration. Fire, fire, fire! The theater's on fire! 
shrieked the literal Mrs. Pottle, running wildly to the green room and then to her dressing room to make a bundle of her theatrical belongings. Fire, 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 echoed voices on every side. Everyone following her example gathered up whatever he could seize and rushing into the street. The direful words reached the audience. Fire, 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 resounded from the pit to the dome. There was a general rush towards the doors. Screams, oaths, mad ejaculations went up, mingling with hundreds of voices, repeating the awful words, fire, fire, fire. Some even fancied that they saw the flames and were becoming stifled with the smoke. The theater was cleared in front. Not a being was left behind the scenes. The fire bells were ringing vociferously. The engines thronged the streets. The crowd waited without to behold the bursting flames that were every moment expected to dart from the windows of the building. None appeared. Where is the fire? Who gave the alarm? asked Mr. Belton of a shivering group of actors who, in their fantastical costumes, were huddled together on the sidewalk. I heard it from Mr. Finch. I heard it from Mr. McSwain. I heard it from Mr. Tennant. Mr. Tennant? Where is Mr. Tennant? Whom did you hear it from, sir? Mrs. Pottle was the first person who gave me the alarm, said Mr. Tennant. Yes, I started the alarm. That I did. Mr. Doran. I heard it first from Mr. Doran, said Mrs. Pottle in a self-congratulating tone. I gave the alarm on the instant. Oh, I took care to do that. I do, do believe it's owing to me that you are all saved. You heard it from me, madame, said Mr. Doran. Never. I know nothing of fire until half the people had rushed from the theater. Yes, yes, I did. You knew it well enough. I found you shouting out fire, fire, fire to your daughter and trying to warn her first. Mr. Doran's emphatic but somewhat profane reply may better be imagined than set down on paper. An explanation ensued. Mrs. Pottle was driven about by a whirlwind of reproaches. The actors returned to the theater. Only a portion of the audience could be lured back again. After a short interval, the play proceeded, but its doom was inevitable. The performers were more unfitted than ever to personate their parts. The audience was out of humor. In the fourth act, a solitary hiss made itself audible. More appalling was that snaky sound to the young author's ears than the terror-inspiring cry of fire, fire. The hisses increased. Some of the author's friends tried to drown them with laborious applause, but in vain. The disapprobation became general, and several of the company, unfortunate Mrs. Pottle among the number, were greeted with cries of, Off! Off! The manager ordered the curtain to be abruptly lowered. The denouement of the play remained in mysterious obscurity. The mortification of the maltreated author needs no description. A friend who joined him in his private box jocosely advised him that he should join in the unanimous condemnation, 
a practice not unknown to dramatists, but Mr. Percy had not learned worldly lessons sufficient to profit by the sage counsel. As the curtain began to unroll, he made his way out of the theater and betook himself to flight. Two hours later, a wearied young girl, upon whose brow a wreath of white roses slowly withered, stood for a few moments at her chamber window before retiring. Whose was the muffled form promenading up and down on the opposite side of the street? Whose the countenance so often turned to that casement? It was too dark for the features to be distinguished. Possibly she was deceived, but a low, sweet voice within her whispered that it was the young author. End of section 7